Welcome to the Culta Podcast, where two best friends tell each other stories about history, true crime, and other shenanigans. I'm Courtney. I'm Ash. Ashley, how you doing this week? Yeah, a little bit of a struggle bus, but okay, we'll get there. How was your week? It's pretty good. I'm waiting to hear back about something, and I was supposed to know about it, and I'm stressed out. It'll be okay. I know what you're waiting on. It'll be okay. <laughs> know where I'm going to live. Why oh. would you need to know such a minor detail of your life? Unnecessary. Unnecessary to know if I need to. Well, either way, you're going to have to move. I'm going to have to move. Like, how? It's a matter of where. Yeah. It is your topic this week. I'm going to toss you all so you can have the speaking ball. <laughs> you didn't catch it. You seem to re- reject it, the speaking ball. Yeah, that's because it was a real dorky thing to do. <laughs> um. So... I'm going to try this again, Ashley. I'm going to throw you the talk. I'm not catching the talking ball. And an aggressive. <laughs> that's how we're I. Not, we're not making that a thing. All right. Let's talk about something where hundreds of. Wow. Wow. You threw me the talking ball. Transition there, man. <laughs> no. So, okay. So it's another plane crash story, except unlike the others. Until you going in, nobody makes it out of this one. We were alive for this. I don't remember it. But we were alive for this. I got Jen. It's going to be my friend during. Yeah, yeah, it is. You might need. I got, wait, I got Actually, that. no, because there were some good things that came out of this. So we're going to talk about the in-air breakup of flight, uh, TWA flight 800. I like that you say numbers at me. And I know. Letters, and act like I know what you're talking about. TWA is Transworld Airlines. Um, and it was flight 800 out of JFK, which is the airport in New York. Yes, I know that. It is also a horrible airport and I <laughs> It's better than LaGuardia. Anyway, you know what? I'd take Newark over both of them. It's the only time I would pick New Jersey over New York, but I would for that. Yeah, Newark's nice. It's a circle. It has a circular terminals. Anyway. I'm pretty sure I got sick. Can you tell we fly a lot? So LaGuardia is the airport that wouldn't let my dad back to the terminal with my sister and I when we were unaccompanied minors. His name matched someone on the no-fly list in like 2003. Yeah, that's recent enough. Yeah, they were were not. My mom. My mom was so mad. Um, I thought, I think it's funny now, but at the time, I mean, it wasn't bad. Stewardess went back with us and hung out. It was fine. Do you want to know how my sister almost got on a, a watch list? Yeah, I mean, yes. When she was a child? <laughs> yes. Uh, so November, like Thanksgiving 2001, because it was really cheap to fly, we had Thanksgiving in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> Hey, their their family would. Do you meet Gilberto down there? Sadly, um, but that would be such a great origin story for your friendship. We were exploiting the post the post nine eleven uh air fair depression and and, just and tourist depression. Bestie. Think of how many people were yeah, going on vacation. My parents hopped on that. Had Thanksgiving on the beach. Awesome time. Um, but we were, I think we were flying out of Cleveland, uh, and we all go through the, like, metal detector, because this is before body scan and stuff like that, and my sister gets, like, uh, like, heaps going off, and so we couldn't figure out what it is, so they're like, okay, empty all your pocket, and this story embarrasses my mother forever, at the time it embarrassed her, she starts pulling candy wrapper, hand, handful of candy wrappers, I should mention, like, at this time, I might be around 10. My sister's 11, maybe 90 pounds. She f- might have finally gotten out of the car seat. It's fine. <laughs> For a long time, people asked us if her, if Caitlin was okay because she kind of looked in. Like, she was so skinny. Yeah, my sister was the same way. She weighed 70 pounds in, like, 7th grade. Yeah. She, Caitlin, Caitlin aged out of the car seat. <laughs> I got out of it early because I was really tall. Anyway. 
But yeah, so Caitlin loved candy and just kept like, I mean, there was a mound of candy wrappers, empty candy wrappers that were just in her coat pocket. And like, was that what was setting it off? So they keep scanning her. She has empty pockets. They keep scanning her, scanning her. It keeps going off. It was her zipper. <laughs> but they like, I'm pretty sure they like, from what I remember, they almost took my sister back and like searched her. Like this, like, maybe 80-pound, 11-year-old. To be fair, though, she's the one you would pick if you don't want people to inspect her. She has nowhere to hide things. But, yeah, so. And then they figured it out, and my mom tries to go and throw all the candy wrappers away. And Caitlin takes them and puts them back in her pockets. (laughs) I love your sister so much. Oh, it's my, oh, I mean, our, we had no chance for our sense of humor. Like the fact that she just put them all back. It was like, no, these are my candy wrappers. They're going to stay in here. They're going to stay. At least it wasn't candy. Could you imagine how, oh, it'd be all warm. It was like chocolate or something. Actually, no, she loved Warheads. She loves Warheads and Jolly Ranchers. So So (laughs) TWA, this is how we get angry YouTube comments. Hey, hey, it was only one guy. Looking at you, Fred. Fuck you, Fred. All right. I really hope he kept listening, just so we could hear how angry we are. <laughs> nope, I think Fred left. Uh, TWA 800. Transworld Airlines is real long. I'm not going to keep saying it. it's TWA. Um, the airplane itself, which was a Boeing 747-131, was like standard commercial airline. Kind of big. Like 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 a three and a two, or like they got I a middle think aisle? It's... I think it's three and two. Those are nice. You feel pretty secure. There's a picture of the actual airplane that was taken at Charles de Gaulle. I don't think they're in order. Um, Go fuck yourself for that. But there's more than one deck. So it has like an upstairs because in one of the pictures, it shows like seven blocked out windows in the upper deck of the bulkhead and all of those get sucked out. Anyway. Why? Why? Anyway, getting ahead of myself. Um, So the accident plane was manufactured by Boeing in July of 1971. It had been ordered by our good friends at Eastern Airlines, but uh, after Eastern canceled all of its 747 orders, the plane was purchased brand new by TWA. You mean they didn't want to have four frog farmers finding them? I mean, it was, no, no, it was ordered before that, because that was the 80s. I know. But yeah, they canceled their 747 orders. I don't remember why. Because frog um, farmers. No, that was after they had placed the orders and canceled them. I just want to Timeline, know. Courtney, timeline. I'm just still confused about frog farmers. It's been a while. I just thought about them again, and I'm just like, what are they? I'm just going to sit here quietly and roll this ball of yarn. All right, do that. Um... <laughs> So the aircraft had completed 16,869 flights with 93,303 hours of operation. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, Ashley it had been well loved. Ashley we'll has is our math person, so she would know. Shut up. So um, July seventeenth, nineteen ninety six. Oh, I was alive. I yeah, we were alive. I mean, I was like three, but we were alive. I was almost yeah. Was my birthday's in August. I had just turned three. Like I'm almost a year older than you. So much wiser. Yeah. Okay. Um. So this flight was taking off out of JFK, heading toward Rome with a stopover in. Paris and Charles de Gaulle. Um, Not a bad flight. Started the day off in Athens, landed in JFK around 4.30 p.m. Hang on. Let me pull the thing back up. I'm just going to say, do they know what time zone they're in? Because Probably not, but they'd had a crew change between the Athens flight and the Paris-Rome flight. Okay, good. So they're fresh crew members, but it doesn't do them a whole lot of good. Because remember, no one no one makes it out of this. I'm just going to say I started watching that show LA to Vegas, and now I'm just imagining them on this. 
Probably don't, because you're gonna cry. That's alright. When I was watching Pan Am, and I knew that there was only one season, I was really afraid that they were gonna end with the, fl the crash of Pan Am 1. I think it was. But no, they just got canceled. They don't. They just got canceled. But I didn't know how far in advance they knew that they were canceled, so I didn't know what kind of, like, wrap-up they were gonna do for it. That would have been amazing. No, I would have cried. I would have cried so hard. <sighs> Could have done a I firefly. <laughs> right? Uh... You can't just kill off my favorite TV actor. You can't. You watch the BBC, right? Yeah. No, I know. They have a habit of doing that. <laughs> no, so, okay. The day of the accident, uh, the airplane departs from Elenicon International Airport in Athens, Greece as TWA Flight 881 and arrives at JFK at about 4.38 p.m. The aircraft was refueled. There was a crew change. The new flight crew consists of 58-year-old Captain Ralph G. Kevorkian. Wait, wait, Great what? last name. Yeah, I know. Kevorkian. Kevorkian. It's spelled differently. It's K-E. I don't care. Okay. Um, I'm sure he heard it all throughout. Him. So, so his the pi um, your pilot, <laughs> pilot Kevorkian. Yep, yep. Let's just have a moment of silence for the name, at least. <laughs> you have your moment of silence. I'll talk through it. Uh, 57 year old captain slash Czech airman. I don't know what that is. I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I don't know what a Czech airman is. I'm gonna be honest. He's from the Czech um, Republic. No, like Czech, like a checking account. Czech. I don't fucking know shit about planes. I don't. Uh, well. And neither do I. All right. Um, Stephen E. Snyder and 63-year-old flight engineer slash Czech airman. I don't know what that is. Uh, Richard G. Campbell, all of whom were highly experienced veterans flying with TWA, as well as 25-year-old flight engineer trainee Oliver Crick, who is starting the sixth leg of his initial operating experience train. Oh, no. He's a, he's a baby. Yep. Sweet baby angel. He's, he's our age. Sweet baby angel. <laughs> I'm so mad no one went with that. Uh, okay. Um, so the ground maintenance crew on the changeover locked out the thrust reverser for engine number three because of technical problems with the sensors for it during the landing of flight A1 at JFK. So like when they were coming in for landing, they had an issue with one of their sensors. Um, is this going to be the whole light shit again? No, no, that one was pilot error. This one, there was really not a whole lot they could do to avoid this. I think. Did like an evil supervillain just like, I don't know, punch the plane? I mean, he may well have. There was, uh, we'll get to it. There was a theory. <laughs> All right. Um, so during the refueling of the aircraft, oh, uh, there were also severed cables for engine number three, the rest reverser that were replaced. While they were refueling, um, the volumetric shutoff control was believed to have been triggered before the tanks were full, so they overrode the automatic sensor for the shutoff valve by pulling the fan and overflow circuit breaker. Okay, what does that mean? That's important later. Um, so the volumetric shutoff control is something that like, from what I understand of it, and I'm probably way off, and we'll hear about it later on Twitter, but, um... Thanks, plane people! We don't know fuck yeah, about really. planes! Um, it's a valve that, uh, stops the fuel from going in once it reaches a oh, certain level, Oh, so it's like level, your gas! So, like, think of, like, a your car. Head. Yeah, that's what, it's while they were refueling. So they, they think that that went off before it was actually full, so they had to override it. Um, so in order to do that, they had to, like, pull the fuse and circuit breaker for it, I think. Is what this is telling. Um, it does show that in the week before the accident, that plane had had numerous biometric shutoff related maintenance write up. So they're like, they it's a known issue. They know it's not working. They know that they just have to work around I'm it. I'm sorry if it keeps um, being a problem. Maybe look at it. I mean, they did. They just they did. yeah. They weren't about to take the money out of to yeah. Anyway, so flight 800 was scheduled to depart around seven, but it was delayed until 8:02 p.m. This is important. Um, it was delayed by a disabled piece of ground equipment and a passenger baggage match. So they found a bag, and they didn't think that the owner was on board 
for they had that passenger they didn't I, if i remember the documentary that i've seen about this right they had a bag that they weren't sure if the passenger was on board or if they had gotten like switched to an earlier flight and they have to have it has to match so they were trying to find the passenger who went to the bag so it took like really an hour. you're gonna make yeah. sure the luggage is on the right fucking plane really well they were afraid that it may have been like a lockerbie type thing if there was like a bomb and then no one actually went with it and they yeah, yeah but my thing, thing is i've dealt with lost luggage and no one seems to give that many fucks about it they're like i'm sorry we left your luggage in barcelona and you're in paris and you don't have clean underwear but you're gonna have to suck it up a little bit i was more concerned there was whiskey in it but i mean so they find the owner of the baggage in question they confirm they're on board flight crew push back from gate 27 uh taxi takeoff proceed uneventfully everything's fine um they receive a series of heading changes and generally increasing altitude assignments as it climbs to its intended cruising altitude although that's fairly normal uh weather in the area was light winds with scattered clouds and there were dusk lighting conditions since going down they're flying so it's not like a huge deal um the last radio transmission from the airplane occurs around Wait, 8 30 p.m take took off it uh, so they have a two. half an hour of communication. So 28 minutes. Yep. Uh, the flight crew receives and acknowledges instructions from Boston Center to climb to 15,000. Uh, the last recorded radar transponder return was recorded by the FAA at 8.31.12. So really yeah. this all happens after a half an hour? About half an hour, yeah. Uh, 38 seconds later, the captain of an Eastwood Airlines Boeing 737 reports to Boston Air Traffic Control Center that uh, he, quote, just saw an explosion out here, adding, we just saw an explosion up ahead of us here, about 16,000 feet or something like that. It just went down into the water. Oh, shit! Um, subsequently, many air traffic control facilities in New York and Long Island area received reports of an explosion from other pilots. Many witnesses state that they saw or heard explosions accompanied by a large fireball or fireballs over the ocean and observed debris, some of which was burning while falling into the water. Uh, I'm sorry, how terrifying is that? Like, as a pilot yeah, and as, like, a witness? Well, and so because of the way that it hit and went off, um, there was, a, because of the way it broke up, and because of the lighting conditions and, like, viewing angles, some people thought that there was a missile launched from the surface of the water to, like, up at the plane. Um, because there is video of it, but it's not very clear. 90s, it's not great. And it was, like, out over Long Island, so, and a lot of the videos were, like, from coast, and they're, like, out over the ocean. So it's, like, in the background of, like, shaky videos, and, yeah. We'll, um, we'll find a decent one, so look for it. Oh, no, there's, there's footage of it. In um, the air crash investigation episode about it that I have to find. Um, so you you know us. We'll share. We'll it'll be in the notes and share the air crash episode for you. So if you want to watch it, I don't know why. If they do a really good job explaining it though, I'm sure they do. But I mean, this isn't good. No, it's not. Um, we're picking really happy top. I pick one where everyone is stuck in a hole. You pick one where a plane apparently gets hit by something or explodes. No, it's not hit by anything. It just looks like Superman it. Superman punched it. You know. So there were 212 passengers and 18 crew on board, a total of 230 fatalities. It was the second deadliest um, aircraft accident in U.S. history at the time. You know what they could have used? Some frog farmers. <laughs> yeah, really. I'm trying to lighten this up. There's no way to do um, it, guys. No, I know. I was thinking about that at work today. I was like, how am I going to make this funny? Like, I'm really not be able to. That's not your job. It's the opposite person's job to make the horrible <laughs> story funny. Good luck with that. So the NTSB was notified at about 8.50 the day of the accident. Uh, um, 8.50 p.m. NT NTSB National Transportation Thank Board. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so 
basically the pathways that the wreckage took, the nose, so the nose breaks off. There's a picture of a plane that's three colors. Got it. And then there's a picture of like three colors going into the ocean. That's the pathway that the wreckage took. I thought it was the plane pooping something. I mean, it could be that too. Because, I mean, when you go look at this picture particularly, you'll know what it it looks like someone literally was in Microsoft Paint. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's effective in that, like, you can definitely see where it went, but, like, it's not very artistic at all. You'll be thankful for CNN. CGI. Really, really intense CGI of any plane event or any event oh yeah i'm just thinking of the malaysia one where they like they had a month of like (laughs) i love um what was the it was a family guy episode with where they were like and here's what it would have looked like if the plane had crashed into school for deaf children and then one of them the pilot went home he survived and he went home and beat his wife here's what that would look like yeah you know be (gasps) grateful for that in this case because uh because when you see this picture you're gonna be like i miss the overdramatic cgi and you will understand why it looks like i thought the plane was having an accident i mean technically it did but not the kind i meant (laughs) not the kind you meant the plane is not pooping into um, the atlantic ocean i'm really trying to resist an explosive diarrhea joke here but (laughs) i'm not gonna do it it does kind of look like that though because there's, like, three lines, and then there's, like, well, one. Well, no, it did actually explode, so keep that in mind. Um, so, relative to the my passengers and crew, as well as the media, gathered at the Ramada Plaza JFK Hotel, um, which became known as the Heartbreak Hotel for its role in handling families of victims of several different airliner crashes. Um, I'm sorry, I feel like they would play Achy Breaky Heart, because they're known as the Heartbreak It was 1997. <laughs> so, eventually, it... It took a while for TWA to confirm the passenger list. Um, There was conflicting information from agencies and officials, and so the grief quickly turned to anger and mistrust. There was a lot of tension at that hotel. I mean, you'd rather Um, them take a while to figure out everyone was on board, Yes, but but your family... if If you're the family of the person that it's taking a really long time for them to confirm, and, like, you're sitting there hoping against hope that they'll be the one person who made it out, after everyone's family, everyone else has been notified. Like, if you're the last one to know, that's gotta be rough. I'm also say- thinking this is, like, the 9-11 where certain people were supposed to be on those planes and they aren't. So that's what they were also trying to confirm, and that's why they were being so careful. But, um... <sighs> NTSB Vice Chairman Robert Francis stated that all bodies were being retrieved as soon as they were spotted and the wreckage was being recovered only if divers believed the victims were hidden underneath. But a lot of the families were suspicious that investigators were not being truthful or they were withholding information. Well, you gotta keep the divers safe, too. You don't want them to get... Because that... You don't, you don't realize how how deadly it can be to be a diver at points because so many people just, you know, it's a fun thing to do well, on your holiday. Right, but rescue diving is different. Also, you're going into burning jet fuel on the water. Sharp, sharp as of debris. Sharks. That are incredibly heavy. The wildlife in the area that's probably rushed back because they're like, oh, something is happening. I want to be there. Yeah. I mean, not that it's likely that they were far enough off a Long Island for them to be sharks out there, but, like, it works. Sharks can swim in very shallow water, Ashley. Have you not watched Shark Week? I think we both know I haven't watched Shark Week in a long time. I love Shark Week. Shark Week. Ooh, ha, ha. It was shark bait. Ooh, ha, ha. But okay. I know enough. I know enough. Also, uh, this is just making me think of the honeymooners in Australia where the guy allegedly 
killed his wife because he messed up all her stuff and he was a rescue diver and he said he couldn't pull her up to the surf oh yeah 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 you should do that one anyway all right so um there was also this one i suck like this guy was in a rocker between a rock and a hard place he was between a rocker and a county a rock and a hard place going with rocker the suffolk county medical examiner dr charles v wetley um was there was a lot of anger and political pressure directed at him as the recovered bodies backlogged the morgue keep in mind there were 230 of them that's a lot of bodies that's a lot for anywhere even long island just imagine the Um, mountain from last the pyramid from last time but with last time yeah but there are more people Um, and they wouldn't have fit in our dorm room so they were under constant and considerable pressure to identify victims with minimal delay so pathologists were working non-stop and since the primary objective was to identify all the remains that not necessarily perform a detailed autopsy the thoroughness of the examination is highly variable um ultimately all 230 victims were recovered and identified but it the last one was over 10 months after the crash that's still fucking impressive that's amazing right um the hard the lines of authority were unclear though and there was a difference of agenda and culture between the FBI and the NTSB, so they didn't get along. Um, okay, let's not lie. What if we learned from all the true crime that we listen and watch? Base- they don't play well. They don't play well together. Yeah, first of all, the FBI doesn't play well with other administrative Cough. ATF. Cough. Um, Cough. NSA. Yeah. Hi, NSA! Hi! I saw... Okay, so they're not getting along very well. The FBI, from the start, had assumed that there was some sort of criminal act, and that made them view the NTSB as being indecisive. But the NTSB are much more scientific in their investigation. They're unwilling to speculate on a cause until they have evidence one way or another. Yeah, don't they, like, try to put the planes and whatever back together? So they try to put it back together and see what went wrong, basically. Are they very Um, good at puzzles? I feel like the answer is yes. Yes, absolutely they are. So if you are very Um, good at puzzles, apply to them. Who knows? You could probably just write on your resume, very good at puzzles. Like, the difference between the FBI and the NSA, or the NTSB, is that uh, the FBI, like I said, were conducting what they believe was a criminal investigation, whereas the NTS was on a fact-finding mission to see what had happened, and they're required to refute or play down speculation about crimes and evidence, um, which were frequently supplied to reporters by law enforcement officials and politicians, so that was fun. I always love that, um, when they're like, they're like, you're not supposed to leak anything, and one organization clearly is it, well, and then and everyone else so was like, gossiping. The... It says the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, who were an invited party to the NTSB investigation, uh, criticized the undocumented removal by FBI agents of wreckage from the hangar where it was stored. So there were FBI agents taking evidence out of the hangar, no documentation. Like, that's great. Good job. Question, were Um, they in ill-fitting suit and had floppy hair? I would assume. And like a press badge? Yeah, probably. No, not a... Oh, the doctor. No. I see where you went with that. No, not the... D- and maybe had uh, a homemade EVP device. <laughs> okay, see. Where you went with that? No, I'm talking about Sam and Dean. I'm I'm saying the Winchesters might have been there because they seem like the type to take out evidence. Nah, Eastern Airlines, yes. This one, not so much. How this do we know? It could have been haunted. There could have been a demon on the plane. I appreciate you rejecting me by just continuing the story. AK 90% of our friendship. It's fine. So, investigators consider several possible causes for the breakup. 
structural failure and decompression, the detonation of a high-energy explosive device and missile warhead exploding either upon impact with the airplane or just before impact, um, a bomb exploding inside the plane, or a fuel-air explosion in the center wing fuel tank. I'm gonna give you a hint. It's the last. Well, okay, wait. It's a pretty good hint, but we're gonna talk about the others, too. Um, can I throw in my own theory? Yeah. I'm gonna go, it was some sort of trying to stop someone on the plane, and, you know, maybe laser vision... You know what? Maybe punching it wasn't the plane. Even a super villain. Maybe it was um, who was the girl from the what the superhero from the Incredibles that gets sucked into the engine because of the cape? No cape. That's what happened. That's you know what? That's my theory. I know there what was happened, a superhero next to it. They had a cape. Why won't you listen? No cape. Edna Mode says no capes. He says it for a good reason. Pull yourself together. Now I realize okay. Superman so, and the girl are kind of... Kind of. All right. Um, so when it comes to structural failure and decompression, close examination of the wreckage shows no evidence of structural faults from fatigue, which is pretty, actually pretty impressive given how much operation the plane had seen. Also, did um, they collect also, all the plane? Did they get everything? Um, they connected, they collected it up. They collected a very good amount. But remember, they were also only pulling up whatever they thought may hide bodies underneath. But there were 230 bodies to pull out, so that was a lot of record. Um, it was also suggested that the breakup may have been initiated by an in-flight separation of the forward cargo door, like the disasters on like Turkish Airlines Flight 981 or United Airlines Flight 811, um, which the if like the doors open, it caused rapid depression, that sort of thing. Or like a cargo door. I want to say United 811 was, it was a cargo door that wasn't sealed all the way and they got to the cruising altitude and instead of the door being sucked out, like it's designed to now, it was pulled in and it caused a collapse into the cargo. It was, um, Why do you always do this to me? Is it because I give you <laughs> horrible fun facts that haunt your dreams? Yep. Fair, turnabout's fair play. Um, so, but all the evidence indicated that the doors were closed and locked at impact. So, the in-flight breakup of TWA-800 was not initiated by a pre-existing, resulting in structural failure and decompression. They're like, nope, we looked at it, that's not what happened. Uh, well, that's good that no one got sucked out of lane, as that happened within the past, I don't know, what is it, week well, or Well, okay, so, I didn't say no one, nothing got sucked out, I just said that the structural decompression was not the initial cause. Because, like I said... The uh, windows that have been plugged in the bulkhead, the like, so when you're looking at that picture of like the upper deck and there's like the windows that are filled in, all of those fillings sucked out when the plane breaks up. But that's a different story. Um, another popular theory was live missile or bomb detonation. Mm -hmm. So they reviewed recorded data from like long range and airport surveillance radars and it reveals multiple contacts of airplanes or objects in TWA 800's vicinity at the time. But none of those contacts intersected TWA 800's position at any time. What if it was too small? Could be, but so they went to... Um, what if it was a harpoon gun? 15,000 feet. It's pretty good range for a harpoon gun, Courtney. <laughs> I don't know what kind of weapons you're buying, but clearly we need to have a talk. <laughs> could you imagine maybe a harpoon you were, gun? Maybe could... you were the four-year-old supervillain that brought this thing down. Someone please draw that! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so attention was drawn to data from the ISLIP. Islip. I'm never entirely sure how to pronounce that. Either way, I know I'm wrong. Um, I-S-L-I-P. It's a town name on Long Island. I want to say Islip, but I don't think it's right. I'm going to go with it. Islip. 
Okay. Just say it confidently. I, I'm going to say ice lip just because I like the idea of an icy lip. So it shows three tracks in the vicinity of TWA 800 that don't appear in any other radar data, but none of those sequences intersect TWA 800's position at any time either. So all the reviewed radar data showed no radar returns consistent with a missile or other projectile traveling towards the flight. Not even the harpoon gun? Super powerful? Not even a harpoon gun. I know it breaks your heart, but... I think that would just be it's awesome. Could you imagine a po- that powerful of a harm gun? Can you imagine having to go to the doctor to have your shoulder reset after you launch that thing, though? I'm assuming it's kind of like a cannon. Yeah, a shoulder cam. You have you knock your shoulder out of joint trying to aim it. What if it's like a grenade launcher, but with poop? Either way... Did not intersect the flight path at any time, so. Well, you you probably can't see a Um, flying harpoon on radar. It's traveling fast enough, I bet you. So, military records examined by the NTSB showed no military surface vessels within 15 nautical miles of TWA 800 at the time. What is the difference between a mile and a nautical mile besides that one's on the sea? So, 15 nautical miles is 28 kilometers or 17 miles. I don't know why it's different. I just know that it is. Because the sea! I think it has to do with, like, a standard rate of speed, but I I don't know. Please tell us, people, because I'm actually curious, and Ashley doesn't give a fuck. Also curious, can you can you make a harpoon that could shoot them? Please don't make it, because a uh, high NSA guy, I'm not encouraging that. He is an FBI man. You never know, he could be CIA. Let's just get everyone in on this party. So, there is some credence to it, though, because... And so, this is one of the things that... People, it's actually like a pretty big thing in the community, but like the conspiracy community, is that the plane didn't explode because of the center wing fuel tank. It exploded because of a military like operation missile firing thing. Um, all right. So the NTS, however, so records indicate that the closest area scheduled for military use, um, and I don't know what a warning area is, but it's warning area W three eight seven eight backslash was 160 nautical miles or 184 regular miles to the south um it's like basically you should not be in that area but if you're in that area you know probably don't you get a warning you get a warning not shot well anyway it was or they don't way south of where they were they don't bring out the magical harpoon gun not dropping this stop rejecting my friendship what you do is reject my friendship so the ntsb addressed allegations that islip radar data showed groups of military surface targets converging in a suspicious manner in an area around the accident and that a 30 knot radar track never identified and three nautical miles from the crash site was involved in flow Foul pay? <laughs> no foul play. So th- were they circling it like the sharks and the jets and snapping their fingers? Well, so it's alleged that these military surface targets um, not divert from their course to assist with search and rescue. Dun, dun, um, dun. So they just kind of like kept about going about their business. And so that was something that people cited as, well, clearly they're the ones who shot the surface-to-air missile or water-to-air missile or whatever. And that's why they didn't help with search and recovery is because they're like, nope, we did this. We gotta go. Um, so they reviewed the 30-knot target track to determine why it did not divert from its course. Um, TWA-800 was behind them. And with the likely forward-looking perspective of the target occupants, the occupants would not have been in a position to observe the aircraft's breakup or subsequent explosions or fireballs, of which there were several. Um, additionally, it was unlikely that the occupants of the target track would have been able to hear the explosions over the sounds of their own engines and the noise of the hull 
cutting through the water, even more so if the occupants were in an enclosed bridge or cabin. So the NTSB finds that it's not all that super suspicious that they didn't divert and help with search and rescue because they probably didn't hear or see anything because they were facing away and that stuff is loud, which fair enough, I guess. I've never been on that Um, kind of a boat, so I wouldn't. Yeah, I don't know either, but... Um, It does show that other similar summer days and nights in 1999 indicate that the 30-knot track was consistent with normal commercial fishing, recreational, and cargo vessel traffic. So they were probably just about their business on a normal day and didn't know until too late that something had happened behind them. Um, Trace amounts of explosive residue were detected on three samples of material from three separate locations of the recovered wreckage, described by the FBI as a canvas-like material and two pieces of a floor panel. Uh, These were submitted to the FBI's lab in Washington, which determined that one sample contained traces of cyclotrimethyltrinitrimine, RDX, and another nitroglycerin, and a third, a combination of RDX and pentaerythriol tetranitrate. You know who could tell us what the- The internet. Kitty. Also, yeah. Um, These findings received much media attention at the time. Uh, Also, the backs of several damaged passenger seats were observed to have an unknown red- or brown shaded substance on them, which, I'm sorry, but my first thought is, uh, yeah, it's blood, blood. But apparently, according to the seat manufacturer, the locations and appearance of the substance were consistent with the adhesive used to construct it. So it was an adhesive, not explosive. So it was so hot, the adhesive had melted and made a stick. and coagulated, yeah. Um, other, further examination of the airplane structure, seats, and other interior components found no damage typically associated with the high energy explosion of a bomb or warhead, uh, meaning there were no pitting, cratering, pedaling, or hot gas washing effects of What is hot gas? I'm assuming it's not the gas giving you a bath. Um, I want to say, no, I want to say it's a type of burn pattern consistent with, um, explosions involving hot gas, but I'm not sure. Okay, I was just curious. Um, yeah, this also included the pieces on which the trace amounts of explosives were found. Could the explosive uh, elements be jet fuel? So, I, that's what I would, but I don't know. Or something. Um, none of the victims' remains showed any evidence of injuries that could have been caused by high energy explosives. All joints were together? So, they did, um, they did consider the possibility that the residue was due to contamination from the aircraft's use in 1991 transporting troops during the Gulf War. Or it's in a dog training explosive detection exercise about a month before the accident. I'm going to go with the dog. I think it will be the dogs too. Because dogs were hiding explosives know. on planes. <laughs> so the NTSB concludes that it's quite possible that the explosive residue was transferred from military ships or ground vehicles or the clothing and boots of military personnel onto the wreckage during or after recovery. Fair. And was not po- was not present when the aircraft had contact with the water. So they were never really able to determine an exact source of the explosive residue, but the lack of other corroborating evidence associated with that type of an explosion leads them to conclude that the in-flight breakup of TWA flight 800 was not initiated by a bomb or missile strike. It was by those bomb-placing dogs. <laughs> How rude. I'm sorry, that's the most adorable situation you could imagine, though, for that. Just, like, little, like, right? like little chihuahuas, like, placing it really, like, in a hidden spot. I mean, you know for a fact it's German Shepherds, though. Schnitzel would never. Schnitzel would. She would not. Just to keep life interest. No. She had a great day. <laughs> she played in her kiddie pool, and she found a new giant stick. I'm very proud of her. All right, so let's move on. What actually probably did happen, which is a fuel air explosion in the center wing fuel tank. I'm still going with Kate. Also Kate. 
Um, so they examine individual pieces of the recovered structure. Two-dimensional reconstructions or layouts of sections of the airplane and various size three-dimensional reconstructions of portions of the airplane. Did they have um, a lot of craft glue? Did oh, you know they did. Was anyone... A lot of rubber cement, because it was the 90s, just getting high from that glue. It wasn't even on purpose. They were just putting it together. Yeah, there was an enclosed no. space. Um, in addition to the models and reconstructions, the location of wreckage at the time of recovery and differences in fire effects on pieces that are normally adjacent to each other were also evaluated, which is really smart. Like, that... This is why I couldn't be an air crash investigator, because I would not think. But think about it. They, how many do they have to, like, investigate that they just know? Yeah, and a lot of these people have been doing this for a very long time. They're very good at their work, and they study other stuff. Yeah. The sequencing group concludes that the first event in the breakup sequence was a fracture in the wing center section of the aircraft caused by an overpressure event in the center wing fuel tank. An overpressure event is defined as a rapid increase in pressure resulting in failure of the structure of the center wing tank. So there's a picture, it's a diagram actually, showing where the wing center section of the 747-100 is, including where the tank itself is. So it's literally in between the two wings. And like uh, below in the cargo and like below where the seats are. Hmm. So if the structure of that gives out, then you have rows of seats and people who are collapsing into where it had previously occupied space, and there's depressurization and shrapnel. It's a whole thing. It's um, physics. It's a lot of physics yes. and math. And we know Ashley, you're so good at. Math. I'm not good at math, and I never took a physics class. Um. Because there was no evidence that an explosive device detonated in this or any other area of the airplane, it could only have been caused by a fuel-air explosion in the center wing tank. So, there were 50 U.S. gallons of fuel in the center wing tank of TWA-800. Um, That's a lot of milk gallons, isn't it? It's a lot. It's like a math it's question. It's a lot. Um, tests recreating the conditions of the flight show that the combination of that small, relatively small amount of fuel and the fuel-air vapor to be flammable. Um, so, wait, if... Okay, so you have 50 milk jugs, gallon milk jugs, of fuel, and do they know what ignited said 50 milk jugs? So, okay, this is where the episode of Air Crash, Invest Air Crash Investigation I'm the one drinking, by watched. the way. She's the one I fucking know, I don't up know why I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, basically, they think that the insulation, they had wires that used to go in and through the fuel tank. Why? Because it made sense at the time and they didn't know that this could happen. Um, and those wires were insulated but not very well apparently. After a while the insulation would like wear down but they didn't realize this and from what I remember of the animation the prevailing theory is that two of the wires like that go through the tank had been crossed over each other and the insulation had been rubbing with the pressurization and depressurization of the plane and they believe that a spark caught between those two wires in the fuel tank causing the fuel and air vapor explode so then the initial i need you to describe what my reaction was to you telling me. it was a gem it was mostly stunned disbelief and just kind of a lot of shaking of your head it's rage it is rage as someone who like i know it a little bit about electrical wires because my dad has told me things because he does house about being an electrician and running wires and stuff and you said they crossed them and i literally wanted i don't think it was intentional i think it just sort of happened but 
without opening up that section of the fuel tank to look and see, they weren't going to know that that's what had happened. But they shouldn't be given a situation to do that. I want to oh, no. punch through this is one a of the wall. That changes. It's, it's one of the things that changes. Um, so, also... Um, don't fucking cross wires unless they're meant to cross! So... During this time, quenching was identified as an issue where the explosion would extinguish itself as it passed through the complex structure of the center wing tank. Did you just say so quenching? The way it was designed. Quenching. Yeah. So it would like, it would explode, it would like ignite, but put itself out. But because they didn't have a lot of research regarding that, um, a complete understanding of quenching behavior was not possible and the issue of quenching remained unsolved. So in order to better determine whether this type of explosion would gener- generate sufficient pressure to break the, apart the fuel tank and then the airplane, um, they run tests in July and August of 1997 using a retired Air France 747 um, at an airfield in England. And they simulate the fuel air explosion in the center wing tank by igniting a propane and air mixture and it did result in the failure of the tank structure due to overpressure. So the NTSB acknowledges that the test conditions at Brunting Thorpe were not fully comparable to the conditions on TWA 800 at the time. Previous explosions, explosions in the center wing tanks of commercial airliners, such as Avianca Flight 203 and Philippine Airlines Flight 143, confirm that an explosion could break apart the fuel tank, which then leads to the destruction of an airplane. I'm just going with quenching as my new flav- favorite word. <laughs> um, it's a horrible so word. It, well, it, it has horrible end results. That's a rough connotation. Yeah, but it's a pretty good vocab word. Good word. Put it on your kid's vocab list. <laughs> quenching. Basically, um, recovery locations of the wreckage indicate that the red area pieces from the forward portion of the center wing section and fuselage directly in the front were the first pieces to break up. So instead of having it break into two pieces where it's just like the front and the middle and back sections, so like it didn't just break into two pieces at the front of the wing. What happened was the wing section and part of the fuselage directly in front of it broke off and then the nose and the tail were their own separate sections at that point. So then the middle section breaks off. Those are the earliest pieces to separate from the airplane. And then the forward section or nose, either simultaneously or almost immediately after that first section breaks off, the nose part falls, which makes sense because there's nothing connecting it to the tail. Um, And then the... um, Then the tail? The tail, yeah. So it's interesting that those three pieces remained pretty much intact until they hit the water. That's American construction right there. So only the FAA radar facility in North Truro, Mass, uh, using specialized processing software from the Air Force, was capable of estimating the altitude of TWA-800 after it lost power due to the explosion. So because of accuracy limitation, the data couldn't be used to determine whether the aircraft climbed after the nose separated, so they used computer simulation to figure it out. I would think it would it would have um, gone straight down unless... But it didn't. It didn't? No. That's gotta be... I'm just... Sorry, I'm just putting myself in that position if like so it explodes you go up yeah so there's a frame from the ntsb's animation i think it should be in there basically it was going along at its assigned altitude it explodes and it turns sharply up and then down in almost a parabola that is almost a perfect Um, parabola and that would be um the noseless plane it climbed erratically before descending rapidly into the ocean, pretty much. So it's an unusual flight path. That's the middle and tail end, yeah. And then the front went just straight down? The front, so 
the nose pretty much fell straight down, yeah. I'd rather be in the nose. I'd rather be in, I'd rather be in the nose. Yeah, because think about it. Now you're in an open-ended tin can, basically, climbing with no one at the helm. There's no way of anyone controlling it. And also, there's a bunch of fireballs kind of everywhere. I'm sorry, Ashley. You make no one want to ever. You're welcome. Really driving up Greyhound ticket sales. Good things came out of this. Hold on. Um, so 38 witnesses describe a streak of light that ascends vertically or nearly vertically. Um, those accounts consistent with the air accident airplane's light path. Um, 18 witnesses reported seeing a streak of light that originated at the surface or horizon, which also wouldn't be consistent, but that's what led credence to the missile theory, was they assumed that that was part of it. So the FBI looks at it as a missile attack, basically. Suggested interview questions given to FBI agents, such as where was the sun in relation to the aircraft and the missile launch point, and how did the long... How long did the missile fly? Could have biased interviewers' responses in some cases. No, duh. Um, the NTSB concluded that given the large number of witnesses in the case, they did not expect all of the documented witness observations consistent with one another, but did not view these apparently anomalous witness reports as persuasive evidence that some witnesses may have observed. You know what? You know why they probably thought of that? It's uh, when Libya shot down mm-hmm. Pan Am Flight 103 over Scotland. I mean, it's not, it wouldn't have been unheard of. It would just been really, really rare. Well, so another thing that they did were missile visibility tests um, in April of 2000 at Eglin Air Force Base, which, side note, my stepdad also, his contract, like they sent him to Eglin a lot. The NTSB determined after these tests that if witnesses had observed a missile attack, they would have seen, number one, a light from the burning missile motor ascending very rapidly and steeply for about eight seconds, the light disappearing for up to seven seconds, and upon the missile striking the aircraft and igniting... Igniting. Number three, upon the missile striking the aircraft and igniting the center wing tank, another light moving considerably more slowly and more laterally than the first for about 30 seconds, and then that light descending while simultaneously developing into a fireball falling toward the ocean. None of the witness documented uh, describes such a scenario. So because of their unique vantage points or the level of precision and detail provided in their accounts, five witnesses generated special interest. So it would be the pilot of Eastwind Airlines Flight 507, the one who called in and said, um, Fireball? We just saw an explosion up ahead of us about 16,000 feet and they're in the ocean now. That guy. Um, the crew members in the HH-60 helicopter... A streak of light witness aboard U.S. Airways Flight 270. Um, a land witness on the Beach Lane Bridge in West Hampton Beach, New York. And a witness on a boat near Great Gun Beach. I'm just going to say Great Beach names. Yeah, they're pretty good. Um, so the NTSB does really want to talk with them. But they conclude that the witness observations of a streak of light were not related to a missile. And the streak of light reported by most of these was actually burning fuel from the accident airplane. In crippled flight during some portion of the post-explosion pre-impact breakup sequence. So they didn't see a missile. What they saw was burning jet fuel. Which is more terrifying in some way. That there's just right. falling burning jet fuel. Because think if there were... Yeah. Uh, like, boats underneath them or anything, or, like, anything. What if there was a shark, Ashley? Go back to ignoring. Fine, I'm still rolling yarn. <laughs> I was just gonna, I was just gonna let you get that out of your system. The injustice against our fiction shark friend. <laughs> Alright, so, you wanna talk more about this, um, 
wiring. I'd really like to talk more about sharks, but go ahead. I know, but we gotta move on. Uh, so, Boeing designers had attempted to eliminate all possible sources of ignition in the 747 tank. To do so, all devices are protected from vapor intrusion. Voltages and currents used by the Fuel Quantity Indication System, or FQIS, are kept very low. In the case of the 747-100 series, which our plane is, the only wiring located inside the centering tank is that associated with the FQIS. Still don't trust them! I know. In order for that um, quantity indication system to have been the ignition source, a transfer of higher than normal voltage to the FQIS would have needed to occur, as well as some mechanism whereby the excess energy was released by the FQS wiring into the centering tank. What if it just has it poop out flame? Well, so like... They determine the factors suggesting the likelihood of a short circuit event existed. They add that neither the release mechanism nor the location of the inside the centering tank could be determined by the available evidence. So, nonetheless, they conclude that the ignition energy for the centering explosion most likely entered the centering tank through the FQIS wiring. So, the irony of that is that the FQIS system itself was designed to prevent danger by minimizing voltages and currents, um, but the innermost tube of Flight 800's fuel quantity indicator system compensator showed damage similar to that of a compensator tube, which was identified as the ignition source for the surge tank fire that destroyed a 747 near Madrid in 1976. Um, it's not considered proof of a source of ignition. Uh, there was evidence of arcing found in a wire bundle that did include FQIS wiring connecting to the center. Um, and I enjoy your tech talk because I have no fucking clue what <laughs> you throwing out letters, you throwing out. So arcing meaning like strike, like the spark. Um, they also found signs of arcing on two wires sharing a cable raceway with the FQIS wiring to 95. I don't know where station 955 is, but basically they showed they were able to find in the wires signs of arcing, meaning that it was giving off sparks. I'm s- in a bundle that did have wiring connected to the only wires that go through the center wing tank. Do you know what this is? I can tell you exactly what happened then. Uh... So they were actually, this is really interesting, they were able to prove the arcing happened um, because the captain's cockpit voice recorder channel had two quote-unquote dropouts of background power harmonics in the second before the recording ended with the separation of the nose. So like two seconds before the nose breaks off, basically or in the second before, um, they hear two dropouts of background power. So the energy that had been previously going towards whatever's making the background power harmonics is diverted to the arcing wires in the center wing tank, basically, is what their theory. I... Um, the captain also commented on the quote-unquote crazy readings of the number four engine fuel flow gauge uh, about two and a half minutes before the cockpit voice recorder ended. So he knew shit was up. So he's like, this is weird. I'm getting some really really weird readings, but I don't know what to do with them, and I don't know what's causing them. And it could probably have, I don't know. Probably couldn't have done um, anything. It did show that the fuel quantity gauge, so what showed them how much fuel they had, was recovered and indicated 640 pounds of instead of the 300 pounds that had actually been put into that tank. So it's showing more than double what was actually in there, which is really dangerous because the less fuel that's actually in the tank, the more space there is for the fuel vapors to up and pressurize. Um, so the NTSB ends their investigation with the adoption of its final report on August 23rd, 2000. In it, 
the board determined that the probable cause of the TWA 800 accident was an explosion of the center wing fuel tank, resulting from ignition of the flammable fuel air mixture in the tank. The source of ignition energy for the explosion could not be determined with certainty, but of the sources evaluated by the investigation, most likely was a short circuit outside of the center wing tank that allowed excessive voltage to enter it through the electrical wiring associated with the fuel quantity indication. This is kind of like why if you ever see one, someone smoking at a gas station, because you might not be able to see the gasoline in the air, but it's there. Also, your description of like how the the fire traveled on the wires reminds me of when our house got struck by lightning. Uh, yeah. It's the same principle. So do you want to hear some of the things that came about because of Yeah, tell me happy things, because I'm just depressingly rolling yarn. So an interesting thing is that um, a lot of internet users responded to, so set web traffic records for internet activity at the time. CNN's traffic quadrupled to 3.9 million hits per day. After the tragedy, the website for the New York Times saw its traffic to 1.5 million hits per day, 50% higher than its previous rate. Uh, in 1996, few U.S. government websites were updated daily, but the U.S. Navy's crash website was constantly updated and had detailed information about the salvage of the crash site. Um, the wreckage is permanently stored in an NTSB facility in Ashburn, Virginia, which was custom-built for the purpose, and the reconstructed aircraft is used to train accident investigators. Well, that's good. Also, I love that, like, was it, how many hits was the New York Times? 1.5 per day. I'm sorry, there's... I guarantee now that's what they're still pulling down. Um, I'm just gonna say there's some YouTube accounts that get more than that out of video a day. Yeah, but this was, like, I, late 90s. I know, I just think it's great that that's what I the, know. they were like, yay! That's what they're like, yay! Um, okay, so July 18th, 2008, the Secretary of Transportation visited the facility and announced a final rule designed to prevent accidents caused by fuel tank explosions, which would require airlines to pump inert gas into the tanks and will cover the center wing tank on all new passenger and cargo airliners and passenger planes built in most of the 1990s, but not old cargo planes. The NTSB had first recommended such a rule five months after the incident and 33 years after a similar recommendation issued by the Civil Aeronautics Board Bureau of Safety on December 17, 1963, uh, nine days after the crash of Pan Am 14. Uh, the crash of TWA Flight 800 and that of Value Jet Flight 592 earlier in 1996 prompted Congress to pass the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act of 1996, part of the Federal Adi- Aviation Appropriations Act. The crash of TWA Flight 800 and that of Value Jet Flight 592 earlier in 1996 prompted Congress to pass the Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act of 1996 as part of the Federal Aviation Appropriations Bill. Among other things, the act gives the NTSB, instead of the particular airline involved, responsibility for coordinating services to the families of victims of fatal air crash accidents in the United States. And it also restricts lawyers and other parties from contacting family members within 30 days of the accident. Um, It also, out of this crash, came a need, or I'm sorry, after the TWA Flight 800 investigation, the NTSB recognized the need for better clarity as to who has basically priority when it comes to investigating this stuff because they clashed with the FBI so many times. So the NTSB sought and secured language to clarify the issue. Um, So they have, since 2005, a memorandum of understanding, which states that in the immediate aftermath of a transportation accident, the NTSB is the presumptive lead investigative agency and will assume control of the accident scene. 
The FBI may still conduct a criminal investigation, but the NTSB investigation has priority, um, which includes interviewing witnesses. There's a memorial to the TWA Flight 800 victims in Smith Point County Park in Shirley, New York. Um, it also did change um, the way that fuel tanks are built. And that seems like the way a that better wiring idea. is run through them, and that now there is nothing run through them. Of the 230 people on board, there were individuals from the U.S., Mexico, France, Denmark, Belgium, Algeria, Israel, Portugal, Germany, Italy, Norway, Sweden, and the U.K. There were a couple of um, noted people aboard there, um, including. <laughs> Michel Breistroff, a French hockey player, Marcel Dadi, a French guitarist, David Hogan, an American Aww. composer, Jed Johnson, who was Andy Warhol's partner of 12 years, um, an interior designer and director of the movie Andy Warhol's Bad, um, Pam Lichner, a crime victim rights advocate and former TWA flight attendant, and Rico Kuhlman, a German fashion photographer, as well as 16 students and five adult chaperones from the Montoursville Area High School French Club. So, yeah, it was rough. It was something that, like, they didn't know was a problem until it was much, much too late to do anything about it, basically. I finished rolling all my yarn. How you feeling? I was productively sad and really hoping it was a harpoon or cape. I'm thinking, should we do podcast corner and then talk about the major true crime news that happened this past week? Before we got to put our last episode, we could just do like... Yeah, we can do it real quick because I think everyone is talking about it. Okay, we have Hoosier Homicide, which both Ashley and I have probably accidentally ended in Indiana at some point. Oh, sometimes even on purpose. So this is a podcast. I mean, I love all of them, but they do great work on different cases. Um, I love the Ballmeister. He's known as no, known as the I-70 uh, serial killer. Danielle is like, if you're on social media, Danielle is the one who responds to you for Who's Your Homicide. She's amazing. Um, but her and her husband. She's there you. Yeah, she, if you're ever talking to us on Instagram, Facebook, and not. Um, but yeah, Danielle's there, Courtney. But definitely check it out. They cover amazing cases and they do a great job. Definitely check it out. Um, And then we also have Southern Gothic. So Southern Gothic is a really fun, I mean, I listen to a lot of true crime, paranormal podcasts and history podcasts. So it's fun in that sense, but they cover a lot of different kinds of cases in the South, obviously, but you know... I love that they they start off with uh, the ghost of Myrtle's plantation and the quality is excellent. So we're going to let you hear those two and then we'll be right back to talk about the all the true crime events that are happening right now. In five, four, three. Hey everybody, this is Danielle. And this is Daniel. And I'm Carla and we are Hoosier Homicide. A true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Wait. Do you know what a Hoosier is? Nope. Uh, nope. Shit. I'll look it up, I promise. We tell true crime stories with some random connection to our home state of Indiana. So come listen. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at Hoosier Homicide. You can also rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes as well as Pod. We also have a MySpace. No one's come to visit. <laughs> and for honest to goodness, stay out, out of the, the corn. corn. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> From the earliest British settlements on the shores of Virginia to the treacherous swamps of Louisiana and the isolated mountains of Appalachia, the American South has a rich history 
filled with eerie legends and mysterious hauntings. Join me, Brandon Schecksnyder, as I journey into its underbelly, exploring these tales of loss and heartbreak, tortured souls and spirits of the past, documenting ghost stories and legends amidst rich soundscapes and an eerie original soundtrack that can only be found on my podcast, Southern Gothic. Okay, Ashley, do you want to say what the true crime? They caught Daria Rapist slash original Night Stalker. Allegedly. Allegedly they caught, they caught him. They have not proved it yet, but on the DL, it's totally him. And he admitted to... He was also the, um, the Cilia? Yeah. Vidalia? I don't remember which one it is, but the Rainsacker. Yeah. That was him too. Clear pattern of escalation. I love it. I know. And I, I mean, I watched the news conference. Ashley was at work. Working. <laughs> I literally texted her all these updates. I'm like, oh my God, you have to check I think this. You posted like five articles on. You're like, go look at them. We're definitely probably going to cover him later on just because, I mean, go check out Case File does a great multi part episode. Um, I feel like we need to, like, give ourselves time to read Michelle McNamara's book first. That is also true. Yeah, so My Favorite Murder has it. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe... It has two now. Yeah. Because they did the book signing and they did the most recent. Mm-hmm. There's one more that did a really, really good one. And I follow them. Generation Y has covered this. Unresolved has covered this. There's a bunch of really good, really good podcasts that have multi- episode on it and i suggest check them out first um i would say if you follow us on twitter we i definitely have retweeted several of the podcasts who covered it um check them out i mean feel free to theorize with us because we're freaking we were freaking out a little bit like what is this i can't believe it's happened especially (laughs) i'm just gonna have to comment on the way they caught him with like open source family dna i know and it was like a distant cousin, and they're like, this is really close. We'll definitely cover it later on. We got to give it some time, you know. But let us know your theories. I mean, I just want to give, apparently, the woman, his stressor, Bonnie, a hug because she is getting a lot of unfair treatment yeah. in the press. Yeah. It is not her fault that she broke up with someone and started killing. Went off the deep end. Yeah, that's not on her. If someone breaks up with you, don't start serial burglaring, raping, and murdering. It's not okay. But even if you do, know that that is not at all on the shoulders of the person who broke up with you. Like, that is all you. Sorry, the table, like, moved. Oh my god. Thank you for listening to The Cult of Domesticity. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Chorus, Spotify, YouTube, and Podbean. If we're not on your preferred app, let us know so we can get on that. Also, hey, ghosts, um, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen um, or force other people to listen and review it um, to spread the word. And I say I promise I'm not trying to break the Geneva Convention. Don't waterboard people. <laughs> I mean, do force them if you... Just, like, casual coercion is what we're looking I mean, for. Road trips, yes. Waterboarding, no. Yeah. Waterboarding, bad. Road trips, good. Ashley told me I'm supposed to say that. Yes. You listen really well. I'm really proud of you. Good job.
you can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Domestic Podcast and at The Cult of Domesticity on Instagram to get the episode tip-off, recipe of the week, and additional information about the week's topic. You can also find our podcast merch on Threadless by searching for The Cult of Domesticity. And if you're feeling particularly generous, we set up a tip jar on PayPal. Finally, to suggest a recipe or a topic, you can email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. <sighs> Good news, I finished all the yarn rolling I needed to do, so high five! Yay! Oh yeah, high five!